Our passage of scripture is, we're, we're continuing in Proverbs and not a central text per se, so that's why I'm not going to have you stand and, and we'll read it. So we'll begin. Um, when we were building this church building, uh, one of the things that I did not realize is how, how much detail is in the blueprints. I had never done anything like that before. And, uh, And so when we met with the architect, it was just really surprising as to all the different parts being listed into the blueprints eventually. And so for those of you who've done remodeling projects or are in the construction industry or in architecture, this is old hat to you, but to a novice like me, I was clueless. And so what I didn't realize is that in the blueprints itself, besides just the structural things around the walls and everything like that, I didn't realize that actually uh, there was the type of nails you're supposed to use or the color paints or the uh, type of light switches that are on each of the walls and, and so forth and so on. Every single detail is listed in those blueprints. In other words, the architect had absolute control over the design of everything and nothing was left to chance. You know, if this one small little building in San Ramon, California can have that type of intentionality in its design, how much more the God of the universe, who is the great and grand architect and designer of all, would have over his creation? that nothing is left by chance. Things don't haphazardly appear. So when God places Adam and Eve in the garden, he doesn't do so simply at a whim. That is to say that there is a, a real design over how God made the family, how God brought together Adam and Eve in marriage, gave this wonderful blessing of children. All of that is with purpose and intentionality. We have to understand that God doesn't do that to just hope that people will somehow make it by figuring things out for themselves. No, there is this design, this purpose, this intention. And the purpose of it is not for human misery, but rather for human flourishing. The family structure is one example of this design. And there is very little that is being threatened today more than the family. On January 13th, 2022, the Ventura County Star published an article with the first, with this sentence. It said this, if California is ever going to achieve true equity, the state must require parents to give away their children. I mean, look at that statement again. This is the first sentence. And by the way, I saw this in one article, but I've been seeing multiple articles and commentaries about this same idea is that there's this push to eventually separate children from parents. Now you might say, ah, oh, but that's just, that's just on the fringes of a certain small sector of political philosophy and thinking today. But think back 10 years ago and what is commonplace now, but 10 years ago, what was new and innovative from a sociological perspective? It hasn't, 
It, it's, it's not that far away as it seems. And really, when you think about what we're talking about, it shouldn't shock us or surprise us that a, uh, an attempt is being made and it's a strong push to try to separate the role of parents and their authority over their own children. This has been ongoing, not in our day, but it's been ongoing since Genesis chapter three. And we should never be shocked or surprised by the push of society and culture and history to want to break apart God's inherent design. When there is Satan and there is sin, it is always, always something that we should, as Christians, totally understand this is in every way predictable to the natural flow of a world that is constantly rebelling against God and his authority. And so when we see that the family is under attack, it's not the family that's being rebelled against. It's actually God himself. And that has been going on from Adam and Eve to today. We're going to look at this design of authority that God has given to us and shown us in the garden. And we're going to look at it, especially in the context of parenting. We talked a lot about this yesterday at the parenting seminar. But we'll look at it more foundationally um, by looking at first the delight of authority, and then second, the rejection of authority, and then third, the design of authority. First, the delight of authority. When you hear that phrase, do you think that that's an oxymoron? Because the word authority comes, uh, brings sort of the idea of authoritarian. And authoritarian, we think of tyrants and dictators and someone who is just sort of power hungry, wanting control. Delight is not something that authority brings with it. And the reason why it's like this is because authority has today been so cluttered by sin. But when authority is grounded by perfect goodness, then authority can and is absolutely delightful. And we see this delightful design of authority in Genesis chapters one through two. In chapter one and in chapter two, one thing you have to admit to is that it's an incredibly ordered picture of creation. It's constructed very purposefully. It's designed by God, and his intended purpose was to not only create, but to do it in a way in which it expresses his delight. And the way we see this is by the adjective, by this concept of good. When God created, it was good, let there be light. It was good. And every day is marked with the word good until he gets to the creation of human beings, which he says is very good. And so it's more than just creation that takes place. It's God's joy in creating, his delight in creating. There's a celebration that happens. And that means that the creation itself is not about creating these haphazard biological creatures that he just puts there at whim and hopes that everyone will survive. Rather, they're created for a purpose. Human beings specifically are created for the purpose of relationship with him. And that purpose 
And role is emphasized throughout the process of creation and the look of creation and the significance of it. And it's meant to, in every way, exemplify who God is by his very own nature and character. So we know there's an orderliness to this creation. God creates first Adam, and then he creates Eve second. That sequence is not meant to show superiority and inferiority, but rather to show the distinction of function and role. And that God's design is that these two creatures, these human beings created in his image together in some way would reflect his very nature, his glory, his purpose, his character. And that design where there is a difference and distinction of role and function emphasizes God himself in understanding our submission to him. And so Adam is to submit to God as the one who is in ultimate control and who is sovereign, who is loving, who is gracious, who is merciful, who is kind. And Adam submits to his authority. And Eve submitting to her husband, Adam, as the in, in every way understanding the loving, merciful, kind, protective, provisional nature of Adam over Eve. And then Adam and Eve have children, and Cain, Abel, and Seth. And they are also to submit to Adam and Eve as parents who are under the submission of God and his will and his love. And so all of this, when God created it, again, he doesn't create it with this maniacal purpose, but rather celebration, satisfaction, delight, joy was always his intended purpose. But it's, and so it's no coincidence then that the end of chapter two which is all about God's design and his, his um, creation, Adam sees his wife and without even being able to control himself, there's just utter joy in seeing Eve. And he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I mean, th those words are meant to just create this exuberation of joy. Adam sees the beauty of his wife, both externally and internally, and the completeness of that utter joy and peace and security rests in the final verse of Genesis chapter two. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There can be no more vulnerable place, but yet safer place than to have everything exposed and yet there's not judgment, there's not um, fear, there's complete joy and security that rests. It's in every way the picture of what God had designed for human relationship to be, human flourishing. But we know it doesn't stop there, it continues. And it continues in a way in which it sets the stage to undermine everything about God's authority. Genesis 3 shows us that there's a new character who comes into the picture. It begins in the very first verse where the serpent comes in who is craftier than any other beast of the garden. And when we look at chapter three, you see the inversion of the order of God's design. We see first the serpent, who by the way, was always intended to be 
on the bottom of God's design, meaning there's Adam, there's Eve, there's children, and then they are to rule together, together over all the beasts of the field, the cultural mandate in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. But here we see instead the exalting of the beast, and then the serpent goes to Eve, Eve goes to Adam, and then God finally on the bottom. It's the complete rejection of God's authority, his design, his plan. And it's a refusal to accept God as he is. It's to say, we know better than you. We're going to be our own God. We don't need you as God. We don't want you as God. We're going to figure things out for ourselves. Now, I wanted to give you this preface before we begin to discuss the application of authority in parenting, because you have to understand this foundation to really grapple with the idea of discipline in parenting or instruction, training, all of these things that when you think of what is parenting about, why should I do this? Why should I even listen to this? Why should I trust that this actually is for the benefit of not just my life, but multiple generations? It's because God has intrinsically designed it this way for not misery, but for flourishing. And either you say, I agree with that, or I disagree with, um, with that ultimate premise, and then we can have a much deeper conversation. But if you can say, yeah, I get that, I hear that, then you'll understand, especially as we go through next week, much more about some of the practical application of parenting when it comes to things like discipline. Why should we even consider that? Isn't that sort of archaic? If you understand the theological and doctrinal implications of this, then that helps you to know, okay, based on that truth, that application makes sense. So hopefully that makes sense and it'll, it'll come through. But there is this rejection, not of parents, but of God himself. And this is societally known. So with that said, let's look at this design in a little bit more detail. This design that God has for human flourishing in relationship. What God wants of us is to delight in him, to know him, to be in relationship with him. And the authority of God is not something that we should be quaking with fear. Verse in Proverbs that expresses this idea well is sort of one of the key verses of parenting in Proverbs, and you could make the case in the whole Bible, is Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. It's, again, often considered the verse when it comes to raising children. Let's look at this verse together. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, this verse is one of the most misunderstood verses in all the Bible. It's up there. It's in the top 10 list of mis most misunderstood uh, passages of scripture. And the reason is because if you read this verse straightforward, you, your thinking is, if you train up your child this way, they will automatically follow the Lord. And what, is, what has happened is that the way that this verse has been misused and misunderstood is that a lot of parents who follow certain paradigms and you work hard and you, you try to rear your children in the Lord, and then you see your kids turn away from the Lord. And so there's this incredible amount of guilt 
that is poured out on so many parents who think, but Lord, I worked so hard. I, I, you know, I did all these things. I taught them, I, and yet my kids have completely rebelled against you. I thought this was the promise. I read this verse, and you promised me this, and now it's not coming true. So what's happening? Well, this verse, you have to understand, is Proverbs is wisdom literature. Wisdom, wisdom literature is a genre of literature. It's meant to show us principles, general principles that applied broadly, generally, are truths. But they're not prescriptive all the time. It's not all times. It's not similar to, say, Paul's letters and, and um, to the churches. It's different than the Gospels. It's different than historical narrative. And so it's meant to be principles that you apply generally, and generally we can take this at face value. But there are definitely times where this doesn't always happen for some reasons that I'll, I'll talk about coming soon. But this verse does show, one, God's design, his purpose and how it generally should be for us, that we should desire this. We, as parents, should walk along this journey and this path. And parents, we do have this important role of modeling and leading and shepherding and tr uh, training our children to view God as he truly is. But we have to understand rightly what the author's saying. So I want to take this proverb and look at it through two lenses. First, the lens for those of you who are parents. And then secondly, through the lens of for those of you who are children or youth. And all of us are children. We, are, we have our own parents, but very specifically those who are currently either elementary school age, junior high age, or youth, or, or high school age, because it applies to you as well. So first, a word to the parents. It's obvious we must train our children in the Lord. But the key question is, what does the word train mean? Because I think when we hear that word train, we have a certain idea of what that word look, means and what it refers to. We think of teaching. And yes, it does include teaching, but includes more than teaching. So let me uh, illustrate this for you. Ray Ortland, who's a pastor, um, he's a biblical scholar. He, I like the way he understands this word. He says, the Hebrew word translated train up is related to an Arabic verb that was used of rubbing the palate of a newborn child with a date mixture to get the child to suck. It means to accustom a child to a taste and to motivate the child to take it in. And the best way for you to influence your child in that way is for you to be a dedicated Christian yourself. Children sense hypocrisy immediately, but they also know sincerity. If you want your children to be passionate for Christ, let them see that passion in you. Wow, that's... You have to think about that for a moment. So the word train is more than just teach. I'll get to teaching in a moment. But train means you, parent, lead your children by your heart, by your worship, by how you know the Lord, by the way that you are at home. If you are worshiping the Lord at church and then you go home and you're an absolute monster to your children, you're training your children of what God is like. And when you are at home in your daily conversations, when you don't have conversation, when you're quiet, 
when you're looking at your phone and staring at it for you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're training your children. You're saying to them, this thing is very important to me. <laughs> and yeah, the fact that I'm not, never gonna talk to you probably says a lot about how I'm looking at this relationship. It doesn't matter what I say, it's what I do. The training happens nonstop. And when we are worshiping on Sunday, there's a reason why we, um, and some of you parents, you might be, maybe you're new to Wellspring and you think, wow, I, I wish the kids, my kids, I could just send them right up immediately. Why do they have to be there right next to me for a while? Like, why do you do that? You know why we do that? Because we believe that it is your responsibility, parents, to train your children. You know, it's not gospel train. It's not Axis. It's not any ministry of the church. Scripture here and throughout the Bible is so clear that you are the primary trainer of your child, whether you like it or not. And you can offload your kids to a children's ministry or youth group. I mean, think about it this way. One-seventh of your week is here together. And then out of that one-seventh of your week, maybe three hours max of your day, of that one-seventh is spent in this time. And then how much of that is really spent talking about the Lord, worshiping him? So if most of your kid's time is spent on the phone, talking to their friends, in the classroom, on the playground, and they're listening to all sorts of information and hearing all sorts of words and all sorts of gossip, and, and then we as parents say nothing or do anything, do we really think that these short bursts of time are gonna make that much of an impact? They can, it actually can. God can use it. But I'm just thinking very, very practically and pragmatically, just from a sheer numbers perspective, it just doesn't make sense to think that somehow I can leave my kids to the professionals and then have them train them so that they're gonna love the Lord and I could do nothing, all I have to do, it's almost as if I have no idea how to take the SAT, so I'm gonna send my kids to SAT class. And sort of the same idea as we're sending our kids to spiritual SAT class, thinking, I don't know how to do this, so off you go. And then the assumption is, well, they're gonna really know the Lord. No, that's not, that's not how it is. That's not how the Bible says. It says, you parents, Train your children up. Now, one of the reasons why we have you stand next to your children during worship is we want you to train your children. But granted, it is about your heart. So I know this to be true, and I think all of us can say, when you think about your own parents, whether we realize it or not, they trained us. They trained us either to love the Lord or to find them apathetic or to just go through the ritual or as long as we get sent them to church, everything's okay. If I am singing before, so your kids are there and you're there singing, I did this in the first worship, how great is our God? And you're singing, how great is our God? Sing with me. I mean, think about that. I'm singing, how great is our God? And I, they're just watching me. I have no sense of how great our God is. Well, how are they going to understand how great their God is? It's definitely not me because they go to gospel train, suddenly they get it. 
No, they're watching you. And if you're dismissive of Sunday worship, and it's a chore, but you just got to do it, that's what they're going to learn. If you're stingy and cheap, and you lack generosity, well, that's what they're going to be like. They're learning it from their trainer. Children go in the way you train them. And until we recognize that it starts with our own heart, we will really falter to see exactly how we're training our children. You are their primary educator as well. So the word train also has the idea of instruction. And when I think of that concept of instructing our children, especially as fathers, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that because it's God's design, God designed it so that the father has ultimate responsibility over the spiritual care of their family. And when the father is delinquent in that process, it really does damage to that family's soul. I know we might not want to hear that, but you read a passage like that and you see, well, it's up to the father to instruct. And the reason is because, again, there is an attempt to destroy your family. The enemy, your own sin, and the world, all of that is trying to do everything it can to subvert, to control, and to do everything it can to take your whole family, your wife, your children, and to lead them away from Christ. I know this. If you were living in your neighborhood and uh, men, brothers, guys, and there were a bunch of homes and they had each one of them had been hit by burglaries, assaults, and even murder. And it was, it happened in every home next to you. I have a feeling if you're a decent enough husband, father, guy, you will make sure that the doors are locked. You might go and buy a gun. You'll get an alarm system. You will learn martial arts. You'll carry a bat right next to you in your bed. You'll do whatever it takes to physically protect your family. Hopefully, I think most of you men will do that. Well, spiritually speaking, there is an enemy who is out to steal, kill, and destroy your wife and your children. And the danger against them is worse than any thief in this world any murderer in this world. The murderer of Satan is not going to try to kill physically simply your child. They're trying to steal their soul. He's trying to, to, to destroy this person, your child, eternally. And so for us as fathers and men to simply say, I don't have enough time. It's, it's like you were to say to your wife and your children, if, as you're hearing these reports of all these murders happening right around your house, and they say, can you help us secure our house? And you're to say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy. I don't know how to do it. Would we really answer that way? Why is it then that men, fathers, that if we were to physically protect our children, our, our wives, 
in our home, why is it that we're so willing to allow a far greater, more dangerous person in Satan himself? It's just simply let him walk into our door without doing anything to defend ourselves and our family. The training up of, our, of your family is essential for the protection of your family's life, your children. And if you shirk that, you are derelict of duty. I know this is a harsh word, but it's because the danger is very real. And I say it with, as someone who knows that. I've seen families destroyed because of men who have just simply been passive and allowed the enemy to walk just into their home without even a hint of saying, I will do whatever it takes. Now, some of you might say, but I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't know enough about Christianity. I don't know enough about the Lord. I'm unequipped. I'm unable. But what are you doing about it? Again, if you didn't know how to defend your physical home, wouldn't you look at YouTube and figure out, okay, I got I to gotta read about this, or maybe you'll go to get martial arts training. Maybe you'll go buy a gun and go to the gun range and try to learn how to shoot a gun or whatever it might be. You'll do whatever it takes physically, and you'll actually go about whether there's cost, whether there's time, because you see it as a priority. It's such a high priority, you're going to take the sacrifices to do it. Why is it that spiritually when your children's souls are at stake. Your wife's soul is at stake that we say, I don't have enough time. I didn't know. We teach, I mean, this is just our church and there's so many resources, but you know, in Acts, we go through scripture uh, every other week. You're welcome to join and learn God's word. There's discipleship groups. And if you're not a part of regularly intaking God's word, if you're not seeking it, there's sermons online. There's, you can ask me any question, ask the elders, have discussions. There's uh, many books. We have a library that you can just go up and say, give me some books to read. I need to, I need to grow in this. But do not give the excuse, I don't have enough time, I don't know. And then do nothing about it. Instead, just be honest and say, I, it's not a priority. And you're leaving your home completely undefended. That is derelict of duty. So then do not be surprised when your children, as they grow old, they turn away from the Lord. They're just following their dad's footsteps. I know this is really strong, but I, I am so concerned that men, we are so passive in our defense of our families that we're letting the enemy in without even putting up any type of fight. Fathers, you are responsible for the training up of your children. If you don't take up that mantle, then there will be many other people, voices, words, images, videos that will train up your children. They're going to be trained up. The question is, is it gonna be you is going to be all these other voices that are trying to do everything they can to upend your family and to destroy it. That's a lot for our fathers and parents. I know you go, oh. all right, here's a word for you kids. Because Proverbs is written to youth. 
Solomon wrote this in, in chapter 1, verse 4. Solomon says, he's writing this to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Now remember who Solomon was. When he was young, he actually said, I want to know you, Lord, right? So he committed his heart to him. But we all know Solomon's story. You know what? He got very distracted, made a lot of, got a lot of money, wealth, became famous, powerful, had a lot of wives. He had everything. And the more he had, the more he forgot. So, you know, when Sam, when he was leading worship, he said, preach the gospel to yourself. The reason we have to preach to ourselves is because you forget so easily. We all do. Proverbs 22.6 is not a guarantee for parents. So parents, every, let's say you do everything. You Fathers, you are training your children. You are walking. You're doing everything. And so, and uh, generally, train up a child in the way he should go, and you'll not depart from him when he's old. That will generally happen. But is it possible that it doesn't happen even if you do everything that we just talked about? The answer is yes. And Solomon understands this better than anyone else. In Proverbs chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, Solomon describes the heart of youth who choose evil despite their parents' training. In Proverbs 5, 11, in chapters 5 through chapter 7, the father is talking to the son and saying, hey, be careful of these people. Because there's a lot of evil people that's trying to stir youth away from the Lord. And then Proverbs 19.27, cease to hear instruction, my son. So teenagers, um, junior hires, this is for you. Listen to what Proverbs is telling you. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. It's not you might, you will. Once you stop listening and you say, no, mom, dad, no, I'm not doing it. Let's say if they were to say to you, and we'll talk about discipline next week, but if they were to say to you, hey, you know what, your phone, it's a real, you're really turning away from the Lord because of your phone. I'm gonna take it away from you. What's your initial instinct? Is there any greater God to a teenager than their phone? We talked a lot about this yes, we, uh, yesterday during the parenting seminar. Parents, can you take your phone away from your child without them absolutely despising you? Is that possible? It should be possible. But if it's become a God, and it's, it's just this deep sense of entitlement because they've already ceased not to hear instruction from you, but from the Lord. And when that happens, you will stray, you will turn, regardless of, so I wanna say to you parents, even if you follow everything that Proverbs 22 says, your children could still turn away from the Lord. It is possible because of these reasons, because they are responsible ultimately before the Lord for their own heart. And so youth, teenagers, high schoolers, junior hires, I wanna tell you that when you cease to, um, submit to the authority of your parents by rebelling against them, you're basically saying, it's not about them, it's about God himself. You're saying, I don't believe you, I don't trust you, I don't want to submit to you. And that rebellion is not just for a season of your teen years, it will keep on going. But the longer it goes, your heart becomes harder. 
to God and to others. And it's absolutely not to flourishing or to joy or to delight. It's to misery. And you'll see this play out throughout your life. One thing I know is that, parents, you can do whatever you can to lead your children to the Lord. And some of you are really faithfully doing that. But one thing is true, Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his. So kids, when you rebel against your parents, remember you are rebelling against God himself. These teen years are, it's a pivotal time. I actually think we as parents, you have to prepare for this and you have to be ready to understand, actually to understand. There is a, this time period is a time of transition for our children to prepare for adulthood. It does mean that we're going to need to be more understanding, to have more conversation. We, I talked about it yesterday, 10,000 conversations with your children, and just all the time. And you cannot give up. Recognize that what they're going through when it comes to the hormonal changes, adolescence, puberty, and all that, it's to prepare them for this independence to leave you to begin their own family and to be fruitful, to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it for the prosperity and good of all of humanity that God has given. So this period of teen, the teen years is meant to show that reality, that there is this transition from childhood to adulthood, but it's not fully there yet. And so teenagers, you are still under your parents' authority until you leave. And parents, you have the responsibility to train them and to be patient with them and to talk to them and to pray for them and to nurture them and to be kind to them and to listen to them. And teenagers, you have a responsibility to recognize that they, your parents have a very difficult job and it's not easy and it takes you be willing to be patient to them and understand their role over you and that you need that role over you. And when it works, it is beautiful. And so Paul Tripp in his book, uh, Age of Opportunity, realizes that the teen years, supposed it's not supposed to be a time you're afraid of. It's supposed to be a time you're excited for. It's an opportunity to see the Lord do a tremendous work of leading this precious gift that you have been, you have been given as a, to be a steward over. You're a steward, parents. They are, you don't own your children. You're just stewarding them for the Lord. And there will come a time where you're presenting them back to him. You're doing that now and you're doing that throughout. It's God's intended design for full delight to come and to enjoy all of his purposes. Let me just close with this. I know that uh, I've said a lot of hard words, especially to you fathers, but I really want to tell you this is that, you know, God, God is a father. He wouldn't say this without actually himself, because he's not like me and you. He actually is not a hypocrite. He always does what he says. And when God says, I know you will never, you can never father enough, you'll always fail. You can't make it. You can't do it. God knew that himself, but God's the perfect father. And you know what he decided to do? He said, I think I'm going to have to send my son. Not I think. I'm going to send my son. And he's going to give his life so that he would be the perfect righteousness. He would be what we could never 
do on our own. He would save. He would be there to be the one who would intercede on our behalf. And so when we fail and when we do, and when we falter, when we fail our children, when we're in our own hearts, when we're not consistent, the Lord will be the one who will change us. He will shape us. And he will remind us of the grace and mercy of our God. That all that Jesus did is for us. He will point us to the loving Savior. Remind us that he is faithful. That he does for all of us as parents. And it is because of that shed blood that we have this opportunity to understand that even in our failures, God takes that and uses that perfectly for his glory. And we can trust him. We can believe that because God himself, Jesus, submitted to the authority of the Father. Trust me, there is no one in this world who had a more difficult task of submitting, not a wife to a husband, not a child to a parent, not an adult child to a parent. No one had a more difficult time of submitting to authority than Jesus submitting to the Father's will. In terms of pain and sorrow and suffering and grievousness, But Jesus also knew that to trust in the Father's will is to be in the greatest, most delightful, most satisfying, most joyous place, most secure and safest place he could ever be. And for that, he said, he set his face towards the cross. I hope you realize that there is no greater hope and design than knowing this truth. Let's pray together. Father, we turn to you at this time looking towards you as the one who led and who designed our families, the families of the world, the families of human history for the purpose of flourishing, for the purpose of your joy and our pleasure and satisfaction. But it would come at this great cost of your son who would be the great reconciler because there is no father or mother, there is no child in this room by our own will and strength who could ever bring us to a place of full reconciliation. We all falter and fail. It's constant. It's every reason why we look to you. So help us to recognize, O Lord, that when we come to this table, we come with a lot of joy and delight in you. Thank you, Father, for this cross. Thank you for the cross of your son that bore the punishment and weight of our sins so that every time we fail in leading as fathers over our families, every time we fail as mothers in not being patient and kind enough, every time we fail as children rebelling and angry and irritable. There is no way we could overcome that by willpower or by some sort of methodology. It's only the cross of Christ that bridges that gap. But we are so thankful for that cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.